Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. Good evening and welcome to Love the Words. This evening, an interview with Deborah Dickinson, freelance theatre producer at the moment at Mind the Gap Theatre Company in Bradford. The second episode of Radio Free Kinsley Essential Listening. And then uh, an interview with Kimberly Campanello and two students from the School of English at Leeds University. They're going to be talking about Tenterhook. The anthology of prose and poetry that's just come out. Then a reprise of the podcast that we did with Boff Wally for Leeds Lit Fest, Leeds Lit Fest, which has just won a Saboteur Award for Best uh, Literature Festival. Congratulations to them. Then two editions of Wordy Birds. Wordy Birds is our regular spot for poetry and fiction in the morning show we do keeping a distance staying close so thank you for listening hope you enjoy love the words so good evening you're listening to love the words on east leeds fm not in chapel fm our lovely building but um in different people's homes houses flats and that's the way we are at the moment and um, I'm talking this evening to Deborah Dickinson, who's a producer, and we're going to be looking at looking back at her working life, but also very much at what she's doing at the moment. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Peter. It's nice to have you have you there. Um, so this is, as you know, Deborah, a, a kind of series of interviews that I'm doing for for Love the Words um, with people who are who for whom community arts and, and participatory arts is kind of at the centre of their work. Would you, would you say that's the, the, true, the, the true picture of, of you? Yes, very much so. Um, I used to work in television for um, 15 years and uh, I really missed having contact with people, realising that when work was made that it went out and you didn't have an audience to respond to it or interact. Um, so that when I started working in theatre, the thing that was most important was working to pe- with people and listening to what they had to say. And not just the people in the theatre, but those people outside of theatre whose voices aren't often heard and whose voices are really important. Mm. So tell, tell us what you're doing at the moment. I know you're working with Mind the Gap Theatre Company. Tell us a bit about Mind the Gap and what you do there. Yeah. Um, I am a producer at Mind the Gap Theatre Company. Mind the Gap is a theatre company for adults with learning disabilities based in Bradford. And at the moment, like many theatre organisations, we are um, a skeleton staff and many of our staff are furloughed because we have to retain as many of our resources as possible so that we can come out of the lockdown strong and resilient and still sustainable. So at the moment we are delivering activities with the members, the students and artists in Mind the Gap. Um, We're doing it all over Zoom. 
So we're getting very practiced at delivering practical activities using Zoom and getting people to dance and to do monologues and um, to be as creative as possible, really. And the other thing that we're doing is that we're sending out resources and activities to artists and other learning disabled companies who are all, we're all at home. So we have to find ways of um, entertaining ourselves and feeling connected because that's what theatre does. It connects people. And at this time, it's even more important that we connect because people are lonely and isolated and maybe not interacting in the ways that they usually do. Absolutely. And it's remarkable how how companies, individual artists are, are adapting and responding. Is there, is there any, it sounds like an odd question, is there any part of you that's enjoying that, that process of adaptation? I think it's brilliant to see the creative things that people are doing. Um, so I know that uh, Pitt Lockery Festival Theatre have done a radio play and they've used clean feed so that everybody's in different places but they're managing to do a radio play. And then I've seen um, plays on Twitter and there are plays on Zoom and people are making all sorts of resources for children in schools and for other artists. So I think there's lots of creativity out there, which is great. But as a lover of live theatre and live events and experiences, I think it's really hard not to be together. Absolutely. So perhaps I enjoy not the wrong word, but I think there's also something about finding that you can adapt, that, that there is, that you can find ways of of working together despite the limitations. Sometimes it is quite satisfying. And, and it, as you say, there is an, an enormous amount of very productive, creative thinking um, going on. But to, to pan back, Deborah, um, to over your working life, did you... Uh, did you have a plan in terms of, you know, if you could sort of pitch forward from the age of 18 or 19 to where you are now, would that surprise you to know what you're doing? No, not really. Um, I started loving words when I was about seven and um, I read a lot of poems because my dad loved poems. So I read a lot of poems and I loved words and I used to put plays on in the garden. So from the age of about seven... I knew that I was going to be involved in the theatre in some way. And I like producing. <laughs> so I used to invite all the neighbours around to see the plays that we put on in the garden. And um, we made mashed potato <laughs> at the interval so that people could enjoy that um, in the interval. Um, so, no, I'm not surprised. I was always going to do drama. I was in the Huddersfield Thespians and um, involved in the school plays and then I studied drama at university. I think the surprise was after doing three years of drama at university I decided to go and work in television. So that was the surprise really at age 21. So why did you make the decision to go into television at that stage? I had such a great time at university playing lots of different parts and I realised that the real world of acting um, on the theatre was going to be very, very difficult and I didn't really want to be third squirrel on the left in a pantomime or doing a, to a tour of no sex please we're British. So when I, in the last year at university, we, um, which was in Birmingham, we did a module at the 
Pebble Mill Studios, BBC there. And they really loved it. So when I left university, I wrote a letter every two weeks saying, have you got any jobs? Have you got any jobs? So I started off as a film clerk in the film unit at BBC Pebble Mill. Um, but that was fantastic. Every day I used to see the rushes from films that were coming in, from dramas that were being made. And in those days, um, everything was made on film. So there were 10-minute reels of film. And if they had what they used to call hairs in the gate, which were bits of fluff in the frames, they'd have to reshoot. So the um, work I did was really important in letting the cameraman know and the drama teams whether the film looked okay. But great to be able to just watch that every morning. But you didn't stay in television. So what, what changed? Um, so I worked in television for about 15 years, mostly working on documentaries, and I was a researcher, which I really loved because I got to go and talk to people and find out about their stories and what they thought of the world. And we did a series on nurses where I went and worked in different departments at hospitals um, with the BBC and find out how they worked. So I loved that meeting of people and um, finding out about different people's lives and then telling their stories. And after uh, about 15 years of doing that, and I went to live in France in the meantime, um, I decided that I wanted to have more of a interaction and more human experience when something was actually broadcast. And um, I saw a job in the Huddersfield Examiner for an administrator at a learning disabled theatre company called Full Body and the Voice. And I thought, I think that's something I'd really like to do. And so I went to the job as an administrator and started work and life back in theatre. So yes, and that's that's that really must have started you on the journey that you're 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 currently and still on now in terms of working very much in a with people in a participatory uh, participatory kind of way. So um, that led to Freedom Studios. Now Freedom Studios is a, is a, it's a fascinating thing. Please tell us a bit about Freedom Studios. Um, Freedom Studios was set up by Madeline Eunice who um, was a very inspirational leader, and he went on to be the artistic director at the Bush, and he's now working at the Shed in New York. And he set it up because he felt that the voices of um, black artists and writers were not being heard, and they didn't have enough of a platform. And it came out of um, Asian theatre school. So his... Um, vision really was to tell stories of unheard voices, the voices of, of people who were living now. And I suppose that was a revolution for me because a lot of the plays that I'd done before at Full Body and the Voice um, were written play scripts and the way that we worked at Full Body and the Voice and at Freedom Studios was a starting point, an idea, a central provocation. And then we would explore that and research that. And that writing was very collaborative and um, devised so that it wasn't a play that existed until we started working on the provocation in a room. And was there much of a tradition uh, of, of that kind of theatre in Bradford at the time? 
No, and not as far as I know. I mean, I'd been working in Huddersfield, but not as far as I know. And I, I know for Madden it was very important that the theatre company existed in Bradford because um, it's where a lot of um, different communities lived and it was where he lived and he felt it was very important to be there telling stories of that community, of that place. Um, and I found Bradford to be a very exciting and interesting place. There's so many contradictions there, um, but amazing people. So it was a good place to be working. And what was City of Dreams? Tell us about that. Um, Madani had great, wonderful, ambitious ideas, and it was very exciting to work with him and try and make those happen, because as a producer, my job was to make things happen, and that means finding money for projects, and it means organising it. And in this case, it was finding a disused mill, because Madani wanted to make a play um, that was set in a mill that told the stories of all the people that came from across the world to work in the mills in Bradford that has made Bradford the place it is today. So uh, we visited a lot of mills until we found one that was suitable, that was disused but is in good enough condition to create a theatre. And it was about creating um, a set, a theatre, where we could bring people um, which meant that we had to have a portable bar and we had to have portable layers and we had to clean it. But then there was the excitement of converting the spaces in the mill into theatre sets. And the um, weaving shed was so huge. I think we had to put a thousand lights in so that we could light it up. Um, and we went to seven different places in the mill telling the stories of migrant workers who'd come to Bradford. And we did it with a Heritage Lottery um, Fund grant as well, which meant that we took school children around the mill so that they could see what it used to be like. And we also found people who used to work there and heard their stories, which were woven into the story we told. And they also came back to look at the place where they used to work. Because those mills were like small towns. There were huge amounts of people that worked there and went there every day. So... We wanted to try and find out, find, recreate something a bit like that. Sounds absolutely fascinating. And also the, it, the youth theatre seemed fairly, fairly important with, within Freedom Studios and what you had there. We didn't um, set up a youth theatre straight away, but after a couple of years of working at Freedom Studios, we realised that actually if theatre was going to make a difference, if drama and telling your own story and being able to express yourself was part of who you were and was available from an early age, that we had to set up a youth theatre to give people the opportunity to discover theatre and telling stories. So we set up the youth theatre working with two different schools, and one was um, Southfield Grange and the other one was Carlton Bolling were really open to setting up a youth theatre fair. Um, and it's still going, which is fantastic. And young people are able to find out about telling their story, find out about theatre. Sorry, I keep saying telling your own story. I think it's because we all need to feel that in some way we have a value, in some way that we have something to contribute. And we do that 
with ourselves by expressing the things that we feel and that are important to us. And often we hear the same old voices, which is why it's so important that we hear different voices on our stage and on our screen and on radio so that we know how other people are feeling. It's something that we did a lot at Bolton um, Optigan was just trying to understand what it's like to experience other lives, to be other people, and to welcome them into the theatre and to go out and to meet them. So, Deborah, um, before we go on, just a quick uh, musical break. Are, are there, 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 there are a couple of pieces of music you wanted to play. Uh, tell us about the first one. Um, the first one is called uh, Needle's Eye by Gil Scott Heron, and he came um, to uh, perform when I was working on Ebony, which um, I did with BBC Bristol. And I thought he was incredibly inspirational, amazing person, and I just loved the song when he sang it, The Needle's Eye. A circle spinning faster and getting larger all the time A whirlpool spell disaster For all the people who don't rhyme Him who don't fit through the needle's eye Him who just don't understand Understand
And before we go on to your work at Bolton, let's just tell me something about Street Voices. Uh, Street Voices was um, a writer's development project that we ran, um, and we did it every two years. Madeleine started it off so that we would have six or eight writers, um, and it was really important that they were from black, Asian, or minority ethnic backgrounds. And over a course of um, 10 to 12 weeks, that we usually ran at weekends. Um, each participant would um, learn how to write characters, narrative arts of stories, um, how to put a play together. And over that period of time, they'd write a play. And at the end of it, we would put that play on in different venues, either at Freedom Studios or we went to Theatre in the Mill and we also went to the Bush in London to put those plays on. And some of the writers that came out to Street Voices have gone on to have really brilliant careers like Ben Tago and Sodwa Naomi and um, Jamal Gerald. So it was a really good starting point for a lot of people and Madani was brilliant at inspiring people and being quite tough on them. And after he left, Mark Catley came and ran the course and so did Aisha Khan, who's now one of the co-artistic directors at Freedom Studios. So... It was very important in that um, artist development work that we did there. It sounds like a natural development from everything else you were doing as well. But let's go to Bolton. So you moved to Bolton Octagon. And um, so, yes, tell us a bit about the things that you remember most fondly from that period. Yes, I did seven years at um, Freedom Studios and then felt it was time um, for a change. So um, I went over to be part of Elizabeth Newman's artistic team at the Octagon and um, we called ourselves the Knights of the Round Table because the way that we worked was that everybody had a voice and it was really important that everybody's opinion was valued and there wasn't a hierarchy. And what we set out to achieve was a people's theatre. So a lot of people in theatres tend to stay in the building but the um, main mission of ours was to go out and to meet people and to welcome them back into the theatre. So um, we ran dinner parties where we invited people to come in and the whole of the theatre was taken over with tables and candles and lights and the staff hosted dinner parties for members of the community to come in and find out what the theatre was like and be entertained and we talked to them about what they'd like to see in the theatre and what ideas they've had. had. And it was very much about um, making the theatre part of the community, making it part of Bolton, so it didn't feel like a building that wasn't part of the community, that was only for some people. It was very much about taking that elitism out of theatre that can exist. Um, we also set up a group for refugees and um, we initially started out in the community but then we brought the group into the theatre and that was very important as, because again people felt valued at being part of the group and being able to have a time in the week when they weren't thinking about um, the things that were affecting them and could just enjoy losing themselves in self-expression and song and movement. Uh, so yes, it was a really good time and the art with communities was very much seen as being art with the theatre. It was part of the artistic programme. The other thing that's 
we did was open up the theatre on bank holidays so that people could come in and we had a train and we had um, sand pits and sand castles and all sorts of games that people could play and crafts and activities. Again, to, so that people felt that the theatre was there for them and it was familiar. Fascinating. So, so many things you've said actually have a resonance from me for what for me from what Alan Lydiard was saying last week. I mean, I think when he went to Dundee, he he also made um, strenuous efforts to bring bring the town into the theatre, and um, and and did that you know in in different ways, but in similar ways, and uh, and and how the theatre is perceived as a space. You you also. Uh, or as a common space, a public space. You also worked with uh, older people quite a lot, did you not, Deborah? Yes, um, I did. When I was at Freedom Studios, we did a project with older people because, I, again, I think these are a group that aren't, whose voices aren't often heard. And we did a piece called Home Sweet Home. And uh, it was about what it's like to be in a residential care home. But we had this brilliant community cast of eight people over the age of 65. The oldest was a wonderful woman called Florence, who was 83. And this group uh, travelled around the country. We went to Stockton and we went to London as part of the show. And we also ran a festival called the Bold Festival, which was um, about work that older people made. And it took over Bradford. But at the same time, um, they had a Bold Festival in London and Stockton. So we linked up the country with these activities with older people and at um, the Octagon um, I initiated some work there where we took uh, songs and poems to older people's homes so we did a bit of a tour um, and people really loved it because uh, it was taking the theatre into residential home living rooms and bringing some joy and some songs and some laughter which um, was really fantastic. And we also um, did some more dementia-friendly productions um, when I was there, which was really important, particularly for carers of people uh, with dementia, which meant that they were able to enjoy theatre in the same way that they had before, but in a safe environment. Sounds absolutely wonderful. I, I mean... To go to just looking back over your your working life, who who do you feel was kind of instrumental in forming your your work and the way you work? Do you, are there are there kind of mentor figures for you? Yes, when I worked at the BBC, I worked um, this is back in about nineteen eighty five eighty six. I worked with a brilliant executive producer called Amanda Tennyson. Of, um, we worked on a program called Ebony, which was a black magazine program. And it was really ahead of its time. So it, all the stories were about uh, people across the country in um, black or Asian communities. And we also had a studio element. So we had Tina Turner and Ruby Turner and Gil Scott Heron all came. Um, and she had to manage many different directors and producers and she did it brilliantly and calmly so she was one of those inspirational people who you just look up to and think oh I'd like to work like that I'd like to be like that she always had time to listen to people she valued everybody in the same way wherever they came from or whatever they did and I was 
25 when I worked with her. So she was really inspirational. Mm. And then when I went to work in theatre at Full Body and the Voice, um, John Palmer was an incredibly inspirational person because he, his starting point was individuals and working with the learning disabled artists there to find out what they could do, what their qualities were. So instead of setting them up to fail, he always worked to strengths and the pieces that we made were constructed around the qualities and abilities of their learning disabled artists and it was really inspirational. He was very brave because we never quite knew what was going to happen, but he trusted people. Um, he trusted the artists to be able to make their work and trusted that it would be interesting for audiences. And I'd never seen anybody work like that. And I think that made me think, which I do now, is about every person as an individual, so that we mustn't judge people, we have to see who they are, and then we're not all the same. Everybody has qualities, everybody is an individual who needs to be treated as such. So that was, yeah, that was an amazing time and changed my whole outlook of the world. Um, and Elizabeth Newman at the Octagon, again, another inspirational person who was just full of joy and took joy wherever she went and kindness and I think that's something that I've taken with me how important it is for us to be kind to each other and to be able to see the joy in things. That sounds yeah that's to be that's a wonderful uh, sort of it's a wonderful set of values and to have at the heart of your of your work and great to hear about those people too because one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm doing these interviews really I think is to highlight some of the people who work sometimes unsung really behind um, behind the scenes particularly in community arts and, and participatory arts do you feel looking back that there's more of an acceptance now for, for for the kind of stuff that you do that I do we do um yes I do but I still think there's a long way to go I still think um for work with people with learning disabilities uh, people go oh didn't they do well considering and I think we've got a long way to go where to where um, trained learning disabled artists are critiqued and viewed in the same way as other artists and I still think there's a long way to go in um, how people judge quality or what they see as quality and there are all sorts of definitions around that but we've made progress I think there's still more to do in terms of seeing community work as being valuable and um, there are still some walls to break down, some barriers to get over, uh, to get away from the elitism of theatre. And I think, I suppose what Alan was saying last week about boxes where people can go and sit and watch in theatre feels slightly alien to me. I prefer to make work that's in a different space. When we were at when I was at Bolton, um, we did plays on rooftops and in car parks and a swimming pool at the Holiday Inn. And those kind of places feel much more democratic and mean that um, the audience feel part of it and they're not cut off by the kind of fourth wall of theatre. Um, and it's just seeing that theatre isn't just in a theatre building, because it can be anywhere 
any time, any place. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, it might have to be any place for, 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 for a year or two. How, do you, how are you feeling about the future of this, uh, of this medium that we, we deal in, this, this, this material we work with in terms of theatre? I think it gives us an opportunity to rethink things, to look at the models we've been working in and think, how can we do things better? How can we be more inclusive and accessible? Where are the places that we can make theatre now? And I think actually looking at some of the science, I think being outside is probably safer than being inside. So are the things that we can do in parks and public places um, where we engage with people in a different way? And how can we make sure that when theatres reopen, that everybody feels um, welcome, that it isn't just for a certain group of people. How can we look at our um, prices of tickets? How do we look at the way that we put on performances? I think there are lots of exciting um, challenges for us to think about and think about how we do differently. What more can we do digitally? Because certainly people have really tuned in to the way that things are happening digitally. Um, so, yeah, I think there's good opportunities for us out well, there. Well, that's a really positive way of looking at things. As somebody said about a different crisis, we mustn't waste the crisis. We must, you know, use it as a, uh, as a time to think forward and to think, uh, to think differently about our spaces. So, yes, go on. We just got to say something there. I would just think to say, I think it's really important to be subversive as well. I think... Um, you know, we all toe the line a lot. And I think now we could be a bit more revolution, revolutionary, guerrilla-like. You know, how could we just pop up and do something somewhere as long as it's safe? But <laughs> how, how can we do those pop-up things? A bit like Banksy with the images he puts on walls. How can we make theatre that just arrives and appears um, in the same way that Banksy does? And just be subversive. Start a bit of a revolution. That's probably a, a great place to leave it, Deborah. <laughs> on the on on the edge of the revolution, there. Um, do you have plans and, and visions for the future in terms of your own work? Are you, are you gonna you're not going to go back to television, I hope. No, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm <laughs> I love working at Mind the Gap. It's very um, inspiring working there. There are some really great creative people and artists, and we've um, been touring a show that we made with Gecko. Um, called A Little Space. So although the tour was cut short, I'm hoping that we'll be able to uh, restart that in 2021. And there are some really interesting ideas coming for outdoor work. So yes, lots to do with Mind the Gap, who um, they've been going for 31 years now. So it's very exciting to see what <laughs> the next 10 years will be like, because they've grown and grown. Um, and you know, there are a lot of very talented artists there, so it's exciting to think about what we might do next. Well, thanks very much to Deborah Dickinson. Thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us today. Uh, you have one more piece of music that's important to you. Uh, tell us about, tell us what it is and why it is. Um, I absolutely love the song Happy by Farrell Williams because I don't think you can hear it and not jump up and dance. And there are some absolutely wonderful videos on YouTube people all over the world doing dances 
to happy. And people just can't help smiling. And I think if we can remember to be happy and get inspired by all the people in the world and all the things they have to offer, I think we'd be a better place.
love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. This is Radio Free Kinsley. stretcher today. He was about to pick another 12 packs, but a member of staff told him if he persisted in panic-picking Pepper, her pistol-packing mama would pack her pistol up his poo chute, and he put the superfluous packs of Pepper back. It was revealed today that, as the Queen self-isolates, along with Prince Philip and their staff, a committee would be considering appointing a stunt queen. Suggestions so far include Christopher Biggins, Michael Ball, Sandy Toxvig and Stephen Fry. Richard E. Grant and Julie Walters have ruled themselves out of selection due to other commitments. A health expert, my mam, has suggested I regulate my tea intake as I slept on the ceiling last night. It was very uncomfortable as Lionel Richie took up most of the space dancing all night long. Homeschooling is in chaos, whilst Treacle has a thirst for knowledge and milk, Bibbles just wants to do PE and wrestling, which isn't on the curriculum at the moment. It has emerged that the kettle is knackered. This morning it made a popping sound and stopped working. A resus team made valiant efforts to save it, even changing the fuse, but a post-mortem revealed the element had gone. I wouldn't mind, but it was a blowpunt. The spare kettle, however, is doing fine. There's growing concern that I may have developed Tourette's syndrome after I fell downstairs while sleepwalking in January. Every time I see or hear Donald Trump, I involuntarily blurt out the word ass. Further tests involving other public figures are planned before a report is made public. Oh, oh, um, we we have some breaking news. Um, Birds are protesting about the state of my guttering and um, seem to be throwing moss all over the place. There's a, a mob outside of tens of sparrows and uh, starlings. Yes, and it's really getting quite um, hectic out there. We'll keep you updated on developments as they arise entertainment news and uh, last night's dream involved Boris Johnson and the cabinet reenacting the video to Father Abram and the Smurfs song from 1978. I really do need to work on that tea intake. Uh, that's all the news for now. 
I'll be back with you later on. Have a good afternoon. Next on Radio Free Kinsley, it's Kinsley Calling with Nigella Cabage. Nigella Cabbage. Call on line four from Trevor Webb's Wonder. Hello, Trev. Well, Nigella, I'm absolutely furious. Why's that, Trev? Nigella, I just got one of them speeding tickets again. Did you? I did. I wouldn't mind it were late at night that I had anybody about, and it was well after closing time. I've driven down that road at 50 for years and never hurt nobody. I mean, why aren't those cameras out arresting drug dealers and rapists, eh? I know, but what I want to know is, now we've left the EU, why have we still got them? I thought we'd got rid of them all once we left. Getting rid of stuff. Getting rid of stuff. Go on, Trev. I can call you Trev, can't I? Well, I mean, it's all about money, isn't it? It's just a cash cow for fleecing the motorists. It's, it's, it's like them flu jabs, I mean. Before we joined, we didn't use to have speed cameras or flu jabs, did we, eh? No, that's true. The squeezing is dry, milking us for every penny they can. Well, let's get rid of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But look, let us. I saw it on Facebook. Them speed cameras are owned by the same people that sell them flu jabs. I've seen it on YouTube. They're all financed by that George, George, George Clooney. Just look at World War One. Who started that, eh? I don't know, really. I read about it once and it looked a bit complicated, so let's blame Germans, shall we? I mean, now we're out of EU, people shouldn't be allowed to complain. I mean, we had a vote, didn't we? It's undemocratic. That's what it is, undemocratic for them to keep expressing their opinions once we've had a vote on something. Tell me something else is undemocratic, Trev. Them judges aren't strictly. Who elected them, eh? Who elected them? Oh, unelected elites. Unelected elites. Ooh. Him on Bake Off. That Paul Bollywood. It's PC gone mad. If he were a white bloke, they wouldn't have him on. PC gone mad. The Abrasive Wheels Act, the MOT test, cycling proficiency, oh! Here on Radio Free Kinsley, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for from Nigella Cabarge's phone in this week. But if you want to hear more of her unbridled truth-telling silence by a liberal elite, you can read her weekly column in The Observer, catch her weekly show on LBC, her monthly column in The Express and her bi-weekly appearances on BBC's Question Time. We're going to go to a short commercial break now, though why the bothering, I don't know, still. Doing A-levels? Fancy a year off? Don't fancy working in JD Sports? Here at privilegegapyear.com we've got hundreds of ways of making the holiday of a lifetime look like you're doing needy folk a favour. For 50 quid, we'll put you in touch with a well-meaning vicar so you can tap up guilty middle-class Anglicans too polite to tell you to piss off. For 75, we'll show your dad how to write off all the travel costs against his firm's tax bill. For only £400, there's our special can't-even-be-bothered package, where we'll Photoshop you into 12 monthly Instagram posts of you playing football with African kids who look bemused but pleased to see you. In addition, we'll write your precious UCAS personal statement for you while you're contracting chlamydia in Cornwall. Privilegegapyear.com 
for booze-ups that look good on a reference. This is Radio Free Kinsley. Reports are coming in that Brexit Bill out the back is mucking about with that broken bit of fence again. Witnesses in our house said they saw him come out and dump some garden rubbish in the backfield, but when he couldn't get the pallets to stand up, he decided to have a bonfire. What followed, according to the wife, was scenes of chaos as the smoke went the other way to what he expected and Marjorie from two doors down came out and had a shout at him. Then, while they were arguing, his fence caught fire and now his wife's brought him out one of them fancy hose pipes with all the settings on. One witness said that were typical, just like when he bought a here and said it was as good as a... Oh, 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 he's disappeared now. Uh, someone's just texted in saying they know him from the travellers in South Kirby and his all has been all fur coat and... Oh, 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 wait! Now he's pointing it at the top of the fire, which suggests a certain lack of firefighting knowledge. He's getting quite smoky now, but I can just see his wife telling him to put it on the spray setting, but he's waved her away. Marjorie, from two doors down, has just leaned over her fence to say she told him it had spread, but when she did, he just gave her that blank look, like when she asked him to name a benefit of Brexit when they were giving out leaflets in the election. And, and yes, yes, the hedge has caught fire now. His neighbours on both sides are giggling and filming it on the phones. We're going back now to the studio where our resident clairvoyant, Pasha Taylor, has got today's thought for the day. Today, she considers what happens when you're having trouble with your neighbours. It's 2am. They're at it again. My neighbours are having a shag. It's really off-putting to hear them both rutting. He's a monster and she's an old hag. They've let themselves go and by God does it show. They take the teeth out when they kiss. I shall stay single. I don't think I'll mingle if they represent married bliss. Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM at Chapel FM Art Centre. But of course, we're not at Chapel FM at the moment. We're in different people's homes. Uh, and uh, in fact, four people's homes, five at the moment. Tony Macaluso is is hosting this uh, this conversation. But I have with me Kimberly Campanello, Samuel Bird, Georgia Palfrey, and of course there's me. So that's five of us, and this is a wonderful thing. And um, are you all there? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello, Leeds. Fantastic. So we're here to talk about Tenterhook, which is a, a, a rather wonderful anthology of writing that, that um, comes from the School of English at uh, the University of Leeds. So first of all, 
Uh, Kimberly, um, Kimberly Campanello, I'd like to talk to you first of all about your role. Tell us what you do at the School of English. Sure, Peter. Thanks for having us on. So I am the program leader for the BA English Literature with Creative Writing course in the School of English. So on this course, our students do a mixture of the study of English literature, but they also engage in creative writing in all the possible uh, genres that you might imagine. So memoir, poetry, short fiction, prose, script writing, experimental writing. And um, so that's what I do is I teach uh, those modules primarily and supervise uh, dissertations on that course. Sounds great to me. And if it's a course I would definitely would have done had it, had it existed, I think, in my, when I was that age. But it's, it's, it sounds wonderful. So, as, as, uh, Kimberly, you're a writer as well. I know that. Yeah, so I, I'm primarily a poet. I've published a number of poetry collections. I've been working on a novel lately, which is uh, a, a, quite a bit of time has just opened up for me to work on that. Uh, and so I've been working on that as well. Uh, and I work with colleagues in the School of English who are part of the Poetry Center, which is another great uh, element that we have at the University of Leeds. Uh, and uh, really enjoy giving loads of public readings, including at Ilkley Lit Fest and other uh, venues around the country and the world. I was recently in Munich uh, representing the UK at the British Council's uh, Visual Poetry Festival in, uh, in Munich right before uh, the lockdown. So that was my last sort of gig, and I, I do miss them quite a bit. But it's great that we can do things like this and come together and talk about writing. Absolutely. And so let's talk about... Uh... Tenterhook. Tell us a bit about Tenterhook and what it is. Sure. So when I um, took over and, and began this course at, at the University of Leeds, I thought it was really important that students uh, would have an opportunity to see their work in print, but also for that, that, um, that anthology to actually be a properly produced anthology with an ISBN uh, and, and for it to be distributed. So it's distributed online at tenterhook.us. You can download last year's edition and this year's edition. And it's also held in the special collections at the Brotherton Library at the University of Leeds, which, which is quite special. So the word, the, the name of the anthology, Tenterhook, which, you know, your Leeds listeners may recognize, um, th those, of, those of you who are interested in history, the, the whole focus on the cloth making industry in Leeds and the Tenterhooks were used to, uh, were attached to wooden frames called tenters, and these metal hooks would hold the fabric as it dried. And they were found all along the river air, and that's why we have uh, tenter hill and tenter lane. We have bits of tenter kind of spread out around Leeds geography. So I thought that that was really appropriate. But of course, we've also got the more metaphorical meaning of tenter hook to be on tenter hooks. And Lord Byron, uh, actually in his poem Don Juan, refers to this idea of of writing and literature, being able to put the reader on tenter hooks, um, and so it, it seemed appropriate both for the Leeds connection, but also for the creative writing connection. Fantastic, yeah. Well, it's a very I've I've seen it. It's a very beautiful, uh, beautifully produced uh, produced anthology, and with some really really interesting writing. Uh, and uh, are there, do you, is there a theme for each issue or is it just uh, people just contribute according to what they're doing and what they're working on at the time? 
Sure. So, so first of all, I have to thank my colleague, Dr. Brett Greatly Hirsch in the School of English. He's a textual editing scholar, and he's the one who's done all the layout and all the design uh, quite creatively. And I, I think uh, listeners might, when they download it, they'll be surprised by that, and particularly this year's issue. Um, so in terms of the themes, there's actually no theme. Uh, I do think that some of the pieces bounce off of each other quite well. But really, this is a selection of, of work that students produced last semester. So I, I went through all the portfolios that they had submitted and chose pieces that I felt were really strong, but also really interesting, and that I think played off of each other in terms of form and content. So you'll find a wide variety of texts. You'll find some kind of science fiction pieces. You'll find some beautiful nature poetry. You'll find some really interesting engagements with more fixed forms. There's a couple of pantoums in there. You'll find some free verse. Uh, you'll find some sort of first-person prose fiction narratives. You'll find uh, a really interesting memoir. And you'll even find a couple of script extracts. So there's a lot of variety packed into that small anthology. Great. Well, thank you, Kimberly. We'll come back to you. But uh, we've got two uh, of the contributors here with us. And uh, Samuel Bird, Sam Bird, and Georgia Palfrey. So, yeah, Georgia, tell us a bit about why you chose this particular course, this mix of literature and creative writing. Yeah, so I always really enjoyed doing creative writing in secondary school, but they don't really focus on it much, and I don't think they see it as a very important thing to do. Uh, we had the odd bit of coursework, and I always really enjoyed doing it and put a lot into it. But I also have really liked the kind of analytical side and looking at classics and being able to write about that critically and um, so it was really good when I was looking at different universities to see that there was a course available that combined the two and I think it does it well in a very balanced way. Um, I feel like I get to have a break from doing the critical side and engage with that more creative side of my mind um, and get the best of both, best of both worlds really. Because sometimes people who do English literature degrees, but also are writers or want to be writers, sometimes say they feel inhibited by, by, by studying literature, by having your analytical head on all the time when it comes to actually doing your own writing. Have you found that at all? Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that when you're, you are analysing literature, you are appreciating it at the same time and you're thinking about the ways that they write and that it translates very well and it's I don't find it limiting to just be analyzing but I do then want to go and put what I've thought and taken from analyzing into doing something creative so I think they they, they both feed into each other really um, yeah great so uh, would you like to read us your poem I'd love to hear it yeah so it's called elephant we don't talk enough of dreams and their strangeness, how we dance through dimensions a thousand times a second, where clouds turn to dust, turn to pins that slice our feet, and nestled desires metamorphosize our coolest fears, a butterfly born backwards. Behind the twitching whites, the dream master lingers, performing his shadow puppet ballet. He flips the world like a beetle, legs flailing, thick to his spindly fingers. In this world, the colors are searing, blotchy, epileptic. At times you want to drown in them until they're drowning us. Anchors on our ankles, screaming, muted mouths. The elephants on my bed sheets remain oblivious, immobile in their delicate threads, nursing their own resentments of entrapment. 
Nobody knows what I'm seeing, and neither do I, three minutes after waking when I go to make toast. Yeah, great last line. I enjoyed that. Um, so, so Georgia, two questions. First of all, yeah, who are you reading at the moment that you most, uh, who, who you could recommend? Um, so when I was doing a lot of poetry last semester, I'd say that most of the poets I read, well, that one was very heavily inspired by Sylvia Plath. Uh, I also really like Adrian Rich, Emily Dickinson, uh, Elizabeth Bishop. And on the more novelist side, I think my favourite is Donna Tartt. Ah, mm, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just read The uh, the Goldfinch. Uh, yeah, Donna I haven't read that one. But... Oh, it's fantastic. And uh, all those poets, yeah, I totally, uh, totally resonate with your choices there. Um, Good people to be influenced by, if going to be influenced by anybody. Um, so what, in terms of publication, I mean, intent to hook, um, that must feel good. Yeah, it's really gratifying and quite exciting as well, because you begin a um, course and you don't really think that you're going to get published much or at all while you're actually at university. And to actually have something like on paper and in print, and like I was surprised by the quality of it as well. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite exciting. And and is writing something you want to do professionally? Yes, I think so. I don't have like a structure in my head yet of how I'm going to do it. At the moment, I'm just trying to get bits and pieces published or submitted in competitions and kind of feel my way around more. But I think I would want to do it, yeah. Well, best of luck with that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, well, yeah, good luck. And, and uh, the people who do it, we, 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 we muddle through somehow if we want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Kim, Kim, Kimberly would agree. Absolutely. But, but, <laughs> so, Sam, Samuel Bird, are you there? Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Nice to have you with us. Um, yeah, thank you. Tell us a, a bit about why you chose to do the course. Yeah, um, so, uh, like Georgia said, um, I think the idea of having English literature and creative writing um, as a course is great in terms of both um, go hand in hand, they supplement each other. I know definitely um, reading on the course has helped with my writing, um, but it's also um, important to know there's a distinction between um, the writer's intention and what we take from it. Um, and I've definitely learned that on the course as well. So it's, it, I feel like it's freed up my writing in a way because it's allowed me to think no matter what I put down, um, people are going to interpret it in any any sort of way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's given you a kind of freedom in that respect. Definitely, yeah, definitely. So, what have you contributed? I know it's a, it's a short story. Yes, that you've that you've um you've got in Tenterhook. Is do you also write in other forms, or is it is short story mainly your short fiction mainly your thing? Yeah, um, I've been trying to try all different forms while on the course. Uh, my thing is um, actually screenwriting. So I, I'd like to write for um, the screen um, for TV or film in the future. Um, but I've definitely um, enjoyed prose. And that's why I wrote all short stories for the portfolio uh, submitted, um, which is where this comes from for the Tentafoot Anthology. Uh, so, yeah. Great. So would you... Could you read us something from your story? Does it would it work in a in a, in a an extract? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've got um, an extract here uh, from the start of the story. Um, just to tell you something about what the story is, it's uh, following an eight year old boy um, who's essentially trying to grow up too fast, 
Um, he's a bit of an outsider to the boys and girls in his class, um, but that doesn't um, bother him. He thinks they're sort of snotty, grotty kids, uh, and he prefers the adults of the world, um, in particular um, the new teacher that has joined the class. Um, so yeah, this is from the start of the short story, and it's entitled The Enigmatic Miss McLaren. The chair in the rightmost corner of the middle groupings of tables was mine, a perfect spot in a classroom contaminated with other children. It provided the furthest shelter away from everyone else, with no one sitting directly next to me, and with lots of space issuing behind it. Through persistent research, I quickly learned my tray was the most spacious, slightly deeper than the rest, and with the positioning of the windows, direct sunlight in the eyes posed no problem. In fact, from where I sat, my wonderful little spot, the morning shadows danced quite beautifully on my desk with each minute sway of the lines. The other small creatures' constant chatter was something that couldn't be overcome, but I found that practicing any new piano piece by tapping my fingers on the table left and right accordingly was an apt escape. I was close enough to the board not to have to squint and far enough away from the toilets not to feel slightly squeamish at alternating breaths. Of course, these were not the only reasons the rightmost corner chair of the middle groupings of tables was mine. It was not only these listed factors that made my spot so splendid. No, of course, there was also the enigmatic Miss McLaren. Being eight years old does have its limitations. I can't drive, for example, or drink alcohol or operate a chainsaw without supervision. Limitations. It can be frustrating. But instead of wallowing in the muddy water of self-pity like so many other eight-year-olds, I put my efforts towards what I am allowed to do. Chiefly, at the moment, piano. Daniel says if I keep at it, I can make it to grade three by summer. I never found the act of playing piano laborious. In fact, I can get quite swept away in my own little world as I play. I've also picked up a bit of writing, with thanks to Miss McLaren. Only journal writings, as follows here, and some poetry when I'm in the mood. I hadn't given much thought to literature before, but noticing my sometimes dreamy-like disposition, Miss McLaren suggested it might be well-suited. Now that I look back, it was perhaps that initial prompting that stirred something in me. Mm. Thank you very much indeed, Sam. And um, is that your first published work or have you published before? I've not. No, it's my first published work, definitely. <laughs> so how are you feeling about that? Yeah, it's really, really exciting. It's nice to have something in print. Um, it's a little bit daunting to imagine um, someone reading something that I've often written in the priv- privacy um, of my bedroom. Um, but that's something that I think is on the step to becoming a writer, getting used to the sharing uh, what you've written. And which is something you'd like to do as well as Georgie, yeah? Definitely, yeah, definitely. I'd like to see it in the future. Well, all the best of luck with it. And uh, yeah, who are you reading? Who do you admire at the moment? Um, I'll tell you the author I probably most, uh, I've, I've read the most of is uh, Haruki Murakami, the Japanese writer. Um, I'm about to finish uh, his most uh, well-known book, 1Q84. Um, but um, I just really like, uh, his sort of uh, weird stories. There's lots of magic realism. Uh, there's uh, characters that seem somehow linked cosmologically but never meet. Um, and there's just weird and wonderful characters. Um, and I often write quite plainly. Uh, so he's sort of inspired me to put a bit of uh, magic into the writing, I guess. Great. Well, good luck, both of you, Sam and Georgia, with your writing. And to come to come back to, to Kimberly. Uh, tell us again how how we can get hold of Tenterhook, please, Kimberly. Sure. So if you just go online to tenterhook.us, both issues can be downloaded there. There will be hard copies available once we can all get back in person, and there will be a launch 
uh, a physical launch. We had a, a digital launch uh, last week with some readings from students on uh, the equivalent of Zoom. Uh, and so w- there will be a physical launch uh, as soon as we can get back on campus, really. So if you follow uh, Leeds University English on Twitter, which is at Leeds Uni English, uh, that launch will be na- announced and, the, and members of the public are very welcome to attend. Fantastic. And the best of luck with your own novel. How far are you through that? <laughs> I've got a first draft. That, which is something to work with, isn't it? So I think that was my aim for the summer was to get to a first draft and then be able to play with it. And I think I'm going to have a, quite a lot of time to play with it, it's looking like. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, but none of us will have any excuses, will we, by the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kimberly and Sam and Georgia. Uh, and you. really look, uh, yeah, I look forward to being to following your progress. And if uh, the next issue of Ten to Hook or whenever you want to be in touch about anything you're doing, just get in touch with us at uh, Chapel FM Arts Centre. So thank you to all three. Bye-bye. Thank you, Peter. Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. Welcome to Leeds Lit Fest 2020. The podcast you're about to hear was made by Chapel FM, commissioned by Leeds Lit Fest and funded by Leeds Inspired, part of Leeds City Council. Each writer profile was recorded on location in an environment in or around the city of Leeds. Chosen by the writer. So, here we are out in the woods on a very windy day with Boff Wally. Hi, Boff. Hi. And you've brought us to this lovely but very windy place. Boff, why have you brought us to this place particularly? Well, I live down in Otley now, um, which is officially part of Leeds in case it needed qualifying. Uh, But um, I used to come out here. This was the first place I came to outside Leeds when somebody said, someone invited me to go for a run with them. First we went along the Meanwood Trail, but the first place kind of outside Leeds, they said, oh, we we go and we do these hill repetitions running up and down Otley Shevin, which I'd never heard of. And we went, we came here on a Wednesday night. I just thought, wow, this is so close to Leeds. And yet it's, it's, because you're kind of over the horizon, it could be, it's practically in the Dales, basically. So I've always loved it here. You're one of the most uh, open-air writers that I know. I mean, you do masses of stuff. You run, you cycle. Has that always been the case with you? Have you just got into that recently? No, it's probably always been the case. I'm not one of these outdoor writers like, you know, like your Robert McFarlane's and people like that, people who do it properly. I don't know about things in the countryside. I just... I just um, I just realised, I think, ages ago that I could... that with writing and music and, and, and theatre and all those sort of things, that you could mix the things that you love with what you're writing about, rather than trying to think, what's the zeitgeist? What are people writing about? Oh, yeah, I'll write about that. I just thought, why not write about running and walking and landscape? And, yeah. Well, you've written about cycling very beautifully in the... Uh, yeah... I read, I read a piece, a lovely piece about cycling. Was that the thing about Millstone Grit and the 
was it that or was it in, we did a I mean Casey did a, a kind of magazine called Bicyclism yes which I think was it was that right about the time of the Tour de France yeah that was great it was really good fun doing that mm. we'd had we actually with, with uh, uh, Jenny who who was kind of organising it she came to me and Casey and I've had this idea we want to do a, a project about Beryl Burton who was this great lead cyclist and we were really excited. We were like, yeah, that's, that sounds brilliant. Because I was always saying, I can't believe that people in Leeds don't know about Beryl Burton. She needs to have a, you know, a name plastered all over the city. So we started doing this project with Leeds Museum. And then it was announced that the Tour de France was going to start in Leeds. So suddenly it was like, oh, and then and it all changed and everybody wanted to suddenly do things about cycling. And we felt like... Um, swept up in it all but it was good though it was a great time yeah you know people you always need excuses to come out and and be communities together often it used to be oh the war's ended or the queen's got got a you know a coronation whereas now it's like oh the cycling's coming through town very involved with the you founded the commoners choir which is uh which is really well they seem to be all over the place at the moment it's fantastic stuff choir all over the place like chaotically you know (laughs) No, all over the all over the Listen to that, it's all over the place. <laughs> the place no. oh, very tight, the opposite musically. But yeah, that is that an, is that another reason for people to come out and be together? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with just getting out into nature, etc. Is is we're in an age of where everything's been pushed towards digital technology and towards being completely connected twenty four hours a day and and for a lot, a lot, a large part of that to be looking at a screen, whether it's a little one or a big one, and it, and it's you know the and that that big myth that our friends are online as opposed to they're in the pub with you or they're going for a walk with you, and, that, and the choir is fantastic for that. It really is just to have that many people in a room just having a really good time singing together, singing the same song. I know. Yeah. And with harmonies. Oh. We journeyed from the rocket to the bluebird. Right around the earth, a compass for a heart, the needle points to north, points to north, points to north, history's needle points to north, grip the stone beneath us, grip to say we dare, grip that belt And is it important for you where you live some people can sort of write or be and it doesn't matter where they are is is place important i think it's really important for peace of mind and for your mental health but um i think writers can or should be able to write about something that they're not just in the middle of i think that that i like the idea that you can be you know um living in Leeds but writing about Los Angeles or or, or, or whatever or vice versa in fact mm. I think that's really important I think what you what you shouldn't do is try to second guess things as if you are in that place I think you have to, you have to kind of create that world in your imagination and I, that's I think that's what good writers can do because you're having to conjure a place up with writing and it's the same with songwriting is that you you kind of draw on on parts of your imagination that maybe don't actually exist in reality, but but it's what it, you, you jumble lots of things together. Say if you were in Leeds City Centre, and you would just think, well, this is just ordinary or drab, and I could be in any city in the world. And sometimes you 
you, you could write about Leeds and you would draw on all these weird little experiences that you'd had and in maybe in the pubs or whatever and you'd, you'd make it this fascinating, interesting place. I'm from Lancashire, I'm from Burnley and uh, so that means I always have a really um, kind of ambivalent idea of what Leeds is in terms of home. Obviously it's, it's where I live and it's where I've lived since the 1980s, since the early 1980s. And, um, but I feel like, because I, I grew up close to Manchester, like 25 miles from Manchester, and so, and it was at the time when punk was happening and I was obsessed with the Buscocks and the Fall and John Cooper Clark and all that sort of thing. So it had such a vibrancy about it. And I came to Leeds just after Gang of Four and Mekons and all them had left. <laughs> Or, or they were just hanging around, but they were kind of on the way out. And so Leeds had to try really, really hard to, to become a place that I felt that culturally was, was vibrant and exciting. And I think it did in a lot of ways. And in other ways, I, I'm still looking for where that is. And, I, you know, if I go to Liverpool and Manchester... And people from Leeds, I've, I've said this to people from Leeds and they, they hate me for saying it, but you go to Liverpool and Manchester or Newcastle or whatever and there's a, there's a kind of cultural swagger, there's a pride in, not in, only in the history, but the, the, the poets and their artists. And, you know, I went in a, in a pub in Liverpool recently with Rod Dixon from, from uh, Red Ladder and there's a, a plaque on the wall celebrating the fact that this uh, beat poet in the 19, late 1950s had... had had done a poetry reading there and, and that John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe amongst all kind of other poets and artists in Liverpool had all been there and, and I just thought this is great this sense of loving your, your comedians and your poets and your writers <clears throat> and it's there that kind of cultural swagger and I want Leeds to have that I don't think we will though because we're, we're kind of you know it's that sort of Yorkshire well that's alright yeah we're okay yeah. we don't do that shouty yeah. thing and I, I think is that a problem I quite like it actually but, but um, yeah no it's not a problem it's just I think it's just I'm not used to it even after whatever many years yeah. I still feel that because um, I was I was I was writing a song which Carl from Cud was going to sing which is me, me kind of artefact that I brought today because it made me have to sit down and think, what is Leeds to me? What, what? Do, and and all I could end up doing was, was thinking that. That I was still conflicted about it. I was too kind of aware that of this whole thing about the the, the river splits Leeds in two, and and that Leeds has different kinds of personalities. And I, as not being from Leeds, I've kind of got different views of different parts of it anyway. And so this song is kind of um, it's a kind of wondering song i'm not really sure what leeds is so let me try and work it out and so, and i and it's really nice that he sings it because he sings it as if it's a love song when in fact it's a song that's going i've no idea what what, what this place is but let's think about it So, Bob, yeah, you, we're walking now through the uh, 
through some mud, it has to be said. Through the quagmire through of the, the Chevron, quagmire. Yeah. You, 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 you formed or were part of a very um, well-known Leeds band, Chumbawamba. Mm. And do you still conceive of yourself or think of yourself as a songwriter primarily or as a, a writer more generally? I'd like to say writer more generally, but, 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 but I tend to get asked to do things based on being a songwriter. Right. Which is fine, because obviously I love songwriting and that's, that's, it's lovely, but I also love other kinds of writing. Yeah. But I don't get asked to do that sort of thing as much. I have to kind of make my own um, reasons to do it. Yeah, so everything you do... Not, it seems to in, include a musical component, would you say? I don't know, actually. I'm trying to think of things you've done that... Kind that, of, uh, yeah. I'm, I've just started writing a book, which is... Um, it's not going to come out until next year, but it's a book about this, this fell runner called Gary Devine. I said I'd once... I wrote a book about running about six, seven years ago or something, and I vowed that I would never write another because I, I thought, I'm not a sports writer, I'm not a sports journalist. There are, there are other people who do that, you know, really well. But um, I finally got sucked back into it because of, of um, thinking about this, this fell runner called Gary Devine, who, who was a teenager in the 1980s, who was from round here, was from Ilkley. And uh, I first saw him running a race, which he won, and he had a pink Mohican haircut. And then I saw him at some punk gigs in Leeds, just all you know, covered in kind of leather and slogans and all this sort of thing. And I loved the idea that he had this life of kind of debauched, ridiculously loud music and alcohol, coupled with this idea that he was an, an incredible fell runner. And he won the British Championship that year against, against these amazing athletes. He won the Ben Nevis race and things like this. Again, with his, with his pink Mohican and all this sort of thing. And uh, I thought, look, that's, that's, that's music and running, you know, fell running, and the kind of cultural politics and everything of how things were changing in the late 1980s and I thought I have to write it because it's got music and, and running and it's got my name all over it. So I've, I've started writing that. So I'm going to ask a question that's going to sound dangerously like where do you get your inspiration from? Okay. But, uh, um, do you, I mean you, you do run, you do cycle, does that help you in terms of uh, your writing? It helps me because I've realised that that um, I used to I used to run and cycle because I loved it, and now I run I run and cycle and walk etc because I love it and because I know how good it is to escape the, the, the trap of working all the time. When I go out running, I'm free of I'm not just thinking about what work I'm doing or what I should be doing, and. So for me, running and, and all that sort of thing is essential for that, for well-being, for looking after myself. What, 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 I, what I tend to do if I'm out walking or running or whatever is I, I, I don't think, what's, what's, what am I going to do with this project? How should I do this? What should that line be? It's more just getting away from that, but then coming up with an idea because something, you see something or something just pops up. Yeah. Because you're free of, oh, I've got to answer that email. Oh, I've got to... What am I? What am I going to write for that line? What does what? What rhymes with pusillanimous? You know, instead of that, I'm just out running, and and I'll think, um, wouldn't it be good if someone wrote a song about um, 
such thing. And then I think, yeah, that would be interesting. And I think, oh, I've got to be careful here. I'm just thinking of another project to do. But it's, it is a time when ideas just, just happen. I'm going to compare you to Elgar. Oh, uh, yeah, what, what, did, what did Elgar do? He used to go out for a walks on the Morvans. Oh, and yeah. That's, and just the, he, he used oh, to say that the yes. physical act of walking yeah. actually... Uh, some tunes, tunes used to come to him, that, and actually, if you listen to some of his tunes, yeah. they do have a stride. Yeah, they sound like they're the, walking, the walking rhythm. Hello, yeah. um, oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, yeah I think that's well, that Darwin had a thinking path, which he, he, whenever he got a bit stuck with one of his ideas, he just went out and walked round and round his thinking path, and then went back in and he, he cracked it. With the choir, with Commoners Choir, we we end up. Lots of times we have discussions about what we ought to be writing about, even if I'm ultimately the, the songwriter. And sometimes we, everybody scribbles things down on pieces of paper about ideas about, about a certain song and lines of that will go in the song. Yeah. And, and even, in fact, even in Chumbers, it was really important for me to... If I wrote a song from scratch, it was never a kind of thing of... Uh, anyway, here's the song, let's do it like this. It would always be, right, this has got to go through the... The uh, that kind of uh, min meat mincing machine, which is Chumbawamba, and everybody chucks ideas in and throws bits out and and adds things to it in just the way they do them and all that sort of thing. Listen close to this crooked mouth for my story I will tell. Oh, I lived in Mexico by the name of Wenceslao Miguelo. Left my home in Santiago, the heart of the city of Merida. Served with my brothers and sisters all for the army of Pancho Villa. Stand me straight against the nearest wall. Line up your bravest soldiers, oh. Ten good shots, I'll take them all. They call me El Fusilado. You talked about being out and about and, and how important that is to you. Do you do most of your writing at home or do you, do you like to sit in cafes or pubs? Or? Uh, probably mostly at home, but I can, I can, I can write anywhere. I'm not, uh, I used to love the idea of having... You know, when, when you see these photographs of proper writers' um, writing desks and their little studios and... And they always look, it always looks so kind of glamorous in a, in a scruffy kind of way. But, um, so I really always wanted that. And then I kind of realised that basically once, once the laptop was invented, I can actually sit with it anywhere and, and write. The thing about living in, in Leeds or living in Armley for a long time was that um, you're absolutely right in the middle of it all. And there's no kind of... Oh, I'm a writer. I'd like to, you know, have some kind of separation. You just—that's—that's that's life. It's—it's it's school and school pickups and all that sort of thing. So, and I like that. I think that's really important. Do you miss it out here? <clears throat> no, because I do so much work with, you know, like with Space Two and and with, you know, in London. At the moment, I'm working in London and Cardiff as well. And it's all refugee centres and. Uh, working with projects about homeless people, so I'm I'm always involved in stuff anyway. So in a way, it's 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 a relief to kind of come to a small town like Otley, where there's 20 pubs per square mile or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs>
So, Bob, we're now, we're not, where are we? Still on the side of Otley Shevin, but well, yeah. what are we looking at? Well, we, we can see over the tree line now, so we've got a better view. And it's, um, so over here, we've got all Ilkley Moor right up on the, on the left-hand side, and over here is Barden Moor, which is great because you can go walking or running up there literally for hours and hours and hours and not see a soul. It's got Beamsley Beacon up on the re very left-hand side of it. But once you're over there, it's great. It's just tiny little moorland boggy paths that go on forever. And right over here, Armscliffe Crag, which is, can you just see, it's just beyond these trees here. It's just the, the bit that pops up. That's a brilliant thinker. You can go up there and just climb up. There's a kind of rocky path up to it. And from there, if you go at night, you can see the glow of Leeds over the horizon without seeing Leeds. You see this huge glow just appearing, which I know is obviously really bad environmentally, but it looks gorgeous. And you can do a walk from Leeds city centre that's more or less all on country paths out through Meanwood Valley and everything and end up at Hunter's Stones and if you time it right you just get there when it's uh, sunset and it's really it's you mean Armscliff Armscliff yeah yeah, yeah. Armscliff, yeah and that's great <clears throat> one of the things about Leeds just talking about that route out of Leeds was that when Leeds Council or whoever it was brought in their um, Leeds live it love it thing um I remember going to uh, Leeds, uh, West Leeds Festival, trying to introduce this idea of doing a campaign which was Leeds, uh, live it, love it, leave it. Because things always come in threes. And, and it sounds callous, but I think one of the best things about Leeds is that, unlike a lot of cities, is you can get out of it really quickly into fantastic countryside. And you can go along the valleys, so you don't have to just get on a motorway to get out. Um, so I've done routes out of a lot of you know, a lot of cities because of this project I'm working on with Dambai and, and getting out of Leeds is, is brilliantly easy. It's really good. You, you're almost, it's literally within about an hour, you kind of feel like you're outside the city. And within two or three hours, you, you feel like you're nowhere near Leeds and then you can just get on a bus that goes straight back into Leeds and takes 30, 30 minutes. Well, while you're talking about <clears throat> uh, Dambai, yeah, tell us about Get Lost, <clears throat> which is the, this, this project you've been involved with and maps and so on well i'm doing a thing with dan which is all kinds of different things to do with escaping from cities and escaping from digital technology finding your way out of a city by understanding maps and by kind of plotting a, an escape route almost as if if something terrible happened in the city how would you get out without having to you know get in your car and drive along the, the main roads and all cities and towns have these escape routes. They're often kind of hidden. And I, was, I often feel sorry for students who come to Leeds who feel, you know, they're in that kind of campus area. And yet they're right on top of that, those escape routes, which is along the, air, the valley, you know, the, uh, the valley that, that, with the, the railway and everything in it. And then there's the valley, there's Meanwood Valley going out they all just escape the city really quickly. So me and Dan are doing all this thing in different cities and we're doing a tour where I kind of sing songs about all that sort of thing, about running and about escaping. And one of the culmination, the, the kind of narrative backbone of it is that he's running from his house in Lancaster and he's running just along footpaths all the way to Kinder Scout where the first mass trespass took place in 1932. And um, it's about 90 miles I'm not doing the whole run, I'm kind of supporting it, but um, 
it's that idea of paying respects to people that opened footpaths and opened ways to get out of cities when industrialisation threatened to close them all off and shut them down. And it's going to be a great project. Are you, is this yeah. going to be, um, can we read about this at all or do you have to be on it? Um, no, it's, it's, it's going to be, there's going to be films made about it, but there are, there are also, we're doing a, an actual theatre show where, and we're, we're doing it in Leeds, I can't remember when. Dan would kill me for not knowing, but I've no idea. It's probably May or something like that. We'd, I think we're doing it at the Playhouse a couple of times. But we're going to most towns. It's ended up... I thought it would just be a lovely little side project that involved running, so how could I say no? And it's ended up being a like a 50-day tour. So suddenly I'm thinking, oh, no, I have to be really fit. So we're in a cafe. We're in a cafe in Otley, having moved from the Shevin with Boff and Rosie, who's holding the microphone, and uh, Boff, tell us about this calf. It was, uh, it was kind of rebuilt and, and set up and started by Tony, Tony Wright, who used to sing, he was the lead singer for Terrorvision. Actually, they still play occasionally, and he still rocks out, but when he's not rocking out, he's selling really nice coffee and also running a print shop downstairs, letterpress printing. I think he does dry stone walling. He's also a keen cyclist. He's one of these people that kind of gets involved in lots of things. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the politics, your politics, is, 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 is kind of implicit in everything you do. Is that important for you every time, in every project, or is it something that just happens anyway? It's not, not a, deliberate, a deliberate attempt to, to put something over every time. I'd like to think it happens naturally, simply because of the times that we live in. Because, be, simply because I can't kind of um, read a newspaper or switch the radio on or, or walk into a supermarket and see the front page of the tabloids. We really are in a time now, more, more than I've ever known in my life, where it's important for people to speak about things, if, if only to kind of let everyone know that we're not isolated especially isolated by digital technology I want us to feel that there's lots of other people who think the same thing as we do in the world Leeds Lit Fest mm. so um, Leeds has never really had a Lit Fest before a literature festival um, not one that kind of unifies I mean sm smaller ones all over the city mm. and of course there's Ilkley and Bradford but uh yeah, what do you think? What good idea? Yeah, absolutely, and long overdue. But obviously, I'm I'm saying that from the comfort of never having said, I'll I'll help set that up and help organise things. So it's really unfair to say. But I do think it's such a it's got such a great literary tradition, tradition Leeds that has been overlooked. I think there's there's um, a kind of municipal love of of writing and poetry in, in, in a lot of other places more than there is in Leeds. I remember Fiona asked me if I'd write something that would be, that, along with lots of other people, that would help towards the idea of trying to get Leeds City Council or wherever it was, or the Civic Trust or whoever, to, um, to nominate uh, Tony Harrison for um, Keys to the City or whatever it was, some kind of recognition. And they turned it down that time when I wrote something for it. And I, I remember thinking... This is the city that, where people queued round, round the block at Queen's Hotel to see Jimmy Savile lying in state, and, and yet it won't recognise 
what Tony Harrison has done in terms of talking about Leeds. And that felt wrong, completely wrong. Um, so I think it's fantastic there's a literature festival. And I can understand that it's, it's really hard to get these things off the ground, but I really hope it becomes something that makes people look at Leeds and think they've got a fantastic thing going on there. Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Hello, you're listening to Wordy Birds. Wordy Birds is our regular spot for stories and poetry. Writers, poets, scribblers, Wordy Birds from Yorkshire and beyond give us what they've got. Today, we have a new contributor to Wordy Birds. His name is Matthew Headley Stoppard. He's a poet, widely published, but particularly by the wonderful Valley Press in Scarborough. He's also the Otley Town Poet. Well... Fancy having a town poet. Great thing. And a wonderful institution. So, a couple of pieces here from Matthew Headley Stoppard. Spring has certainly begun, and with that season, you'll start to see the more formal customs and happenings that take place this time of year. You'll see things like the Maypole. You'll see more dancing around in public places. And you'll see strange traditions too. So what I'm going to read you now is influenced by an influx in strange fiction that a lot of people seem to be reading at the moment. And also the less formal customs, the things that take place every day and that you might notice your neighbours and friends and family do. But I've tried to capture it in what's probably more a poem tarted up as a piece of prose than a proper story. I grew up in a small village that used to be a mining town and there seemed to be a hangover of unusual customs and traditions that my neighbours and fellow residents used to undertake. So this poem 
which is tarted up as a piece of prose, is called Quite Contrary. Fat worms shining in a wet dawn writhed and wriggled into the back garden of number 19 Kenning Street. So effortlessly they plunged beneath the loose earth to swaddle themselves in soil. Onion stalks collapsed under the weight of snails while sprawling squashes and marrows bordered the rest of the vegetables. The woman from the house unlatched the three-inch thick paint-flake gate following the path to the old privy without a door which housed everything she dug up the previous day. A ritual for the newlyweds at number 17 was to watch her put together a selection of produce in a crate, place a dahlia plucked from her serried flower bed on top of everything and then leave it on the back wall. For years, all types from the town would take something on their way to work. Her onions were so sweet, the factory workers would eat them raw, chomping on them like apples during their tea breaks. The dahlias she grew were so bold and heavy petalled that those who pinned them onto their lapels looked like rosette-wearing counsellors. She didn't ask for money and didn't expect to get it, but it was understood to leave her and the garden alone. Even the tomcats knew not to spray there. Housewives would natter about the woman who never married, never mothered, always hidden away in her school photographs and walked around demurely, the collar of her cardigan covering her mouth. No one thanked her for what she left out on her back wall, although everyone wondered how she grew vegetables and flowers that were so famous in the surrounding counties. It was on a night when air was close that the husband at number 17 was woken by the heat. Getting out of bed and opening the window, he heard next door moving about in her kitchen. She appeared in the garden with a pram, wheeling her way to the marrows, tucking two of them into it. Then he watched her step into the greenhouse where she sang hymns and nursery rhymes to the tomatoes in a ragdoll soft voice. The husband thought he should turn away when she untied her dressing gown and hitched up her nighty to her collarbone but he gazed on as she lowered herself to the vegetable patch, pressing her bare breasts into a freshly dug trench lined with onion bulbs. She stood up brushing soil and fat worms off her torso and thighs, and just before returning to bed, she pushed a nipple into the head of a dahlia, imagining her milk nourishing its stamen. I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe that a person's mind is powerful enough to make you think that they are real. For almost four years I worked at the oldest branch library in Leeds and something really strange happened to me there. And the poem that's the result of this experience is called A Haunting at Armley Library. And this took place in the spring about three years ago. She led me upstairs to search the rooms for a noise, a tapping of keys, skeletal fingers drumming a desk, the slow creak of a spine bending backwards, 
I wanted to hear it, over the stifled coughs and imposed silence below, over the sentry of moths and rattling blinds. But only her ears, skewered by rings, caught the sound. Dirty sash windows hung like open mouths as we walked the balcony for what seemed like the lifespan of a book. Then she followed me down to meet another and was gone. I looked to the shelves for my own folklore, told myself the noise came from the clock tower. My veins are now ley lines and I follow her each clicking hour. I hope you enjoyed those strange poems and I hope you're enjoying the spring. Take care everyone. Thank you to Matthew Headley Stockbart, Otley Town Poet. I don't think I shall ever be able to look at an allotment in the same way again after that. Now another new contributor. His name is Keith Fenton. Keith is a contributor, a new one to The Delhi, which is one of our regular programmes. He's been recording some monologues for us. I think you might recognise this. The Recumbent Posture by Marriott Edgar The day after Christmas, young Albert were what's called confined to his bed, with a tight kind of pain in his stomach and a light feeling up in his head. His parents were all in a fluster when they saw little lad was so sick. They said, put out the tongue. When they'd seen it, they said, put it back again, quick. Ma made him a basin of gruel, but that were a move foot worse. Though little lad tried hard to eat it, at finish he'd done the reverse. The pain showed no signs of abating, so at last they got doctor to call. He said it were in the abdomen and not in the stomach at all. He sent up a bottle of physic, with instructions on label to say, to be taken in a recumbent posture, one teaspoon three times a day. As Ma stood there reading label, Pa started to fidget about. He said, get a teaspoon and dose him, before he gets better without. I can manage teaspoon, said Mother, a look of distress on her face. It's this here recumbent posture. I haven't got one in the place, said Pa. What about Mrs Lupton? Next door here, you better ask her. A woman what's buried three husbands is sure to have one of them there. So they went round and asked Mrs Lupton. Aye, I know what you mean, she replied. I had one an order for Horace, but poor dear got impatient and died. She said, you best try the co-op shop. You'll have one in stock, I dare say. In fact, I think I saw one in window. Last time I were passing that way. So round they went to co-op shop and at counter for household supplies. Pa asked for a recumbulant posture. And the shopman said, yes sir, what size? Said Ma, it's for our little Albert. I don't know what size he would use. I know he takes thirteen in collars and sixes, four fittings in shoes. If it's little lad size as you're wanting, said shopman, I'm sorry to say... We nobbered had one in the building, and that one was sold yesterday. He sent them across to a tinsmith, who said, Aye, I know what you've in mind. If you'll draw me a pattern, I'll make one. But Pard left his pencil behind. They tried every shop they could think on. They walked for two hours by a clock. And though most places reckoned to keep them, they none of them got one in stock. 
The last place they tried were chemist. He looked at them both with a frown and told them a recumbent posture were Latin and meant lying down. It means lying down, put in Latin, said father. That's just what I thought. Then he picked up a side glance from mother and pretended he hadn't said note. They're not dosing my lad with Latin, said mother, her face looking grim. Just plain castor oil's all he's getting, and I'm leaving the posture to him. Thank you very much to Keith Fenton, and before that, Matthew Headley Stoppard. That brings us to the end of Wordy Birds, but we shall be back. In the meantime, happy listening, happy writing, happy reading. Hello, you're listening to Wordy Birds. Wordy Birds is our regular spot for stories and for poetry. In this episode of Wordy Birds, we give you something slightly different. It's a poem. It's a poem by a young writer called Grace Darbs. She's from Sheffield. She's part of the Union Scheme here at Chapel FM Arts Centre. And this poem is very much a poem for our times. It's a poem about loss. This poem is called From the Floor. I am waiting for today to be over. I want to sleep, to wake in the morning, and for this feeling to have changed. And I know it will change, because grief always changes, occasionally becoming harder, sharper, but more usually, grief begins to soften at the edges becoming wearable, slowly bearable. Still, for now, I am just waiting for today to be over. I lay on my back, looking up at the tiny dried trails the vines have left behind, on the wall in my garden. I used to stare up at things all the time. I haven't done it in a while. I list all the important people I have never said goodbye to, because we didn't know it was really goodbye, really properly goodbye. I wonder how they saw me, if they ever understood how I saw them. And yet, I know that we loved each other. That was the silent agreement, the thing we passed back and forth between us. A steady flame, a torch, that couldn't go out. As a child, I was afraid of you, sometimes. But that was only because you were you, sonorous, all-knowing. And I was me, hesitant unsteady on my feet but it was also because you were an unstoppable force and I so longed to be one too thank you for my napkin ring the green one thank you for showing me how to pull up rhubarb how to collect gooseberries thank you for all the floral soap thank you for your sticky toffee pudding which I still maintain is the best in the world thank you for the haven It isn't often that a place lives up to its name, but that one certainly did. I must confess that when I was younger, every time I ever played someone powerful in a play, I channelled you, because I thought you owned the room in such a natural way. 
And after a while, pretending how to own a room taught me how to actually own a room. So thank you for that too. Thank you for the way you held everything and everyone so gracefully, spinning us like plates, but still always making those plates feel special, despite their chips, their cracks. Last night, you said your love was widening, becoming deeper. I wonder how that is possible, when your love, your love was so big, so vast already. And uh, that's all from us, from Wordy Birds. We'll be back again shortly. In the meantime, happy listening, happy writing, happy reading. Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. Desolate docks In the still And the chill Of the night I see the horizon Great unknown My heart has an ache It's as heavy as stone Will the dawn Coming on Make it light Waterfront I'm watching the sea Where the one I love Be coming back To me In search 
Well, I'm covered by a starry sky above. Here I am, patiently waiting. Hoping and praying, Lord, how I yearn. Where are you? Are you forgetting? I hope you're remembering. Will I'm watching the sea with the one I love. Must soon come back to me. Soon.